Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Lens, Historians and Popular Media. I'm Gabe Moss, and I'm joined today by our new co-host for the podcast, Craig Gill. Hi, folks. Uh, you might recognize me. I was a guest on the last season talking about Bagger Vance and race and golf and southern things. And Craig is also one of the new co-directors of the Digital History Lab, uh, the home of the lens. We're also joined today uh, by Sarah Miles. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. Sarah is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at UNC Chapel Hill, and her work focuses on the intellectual history of the Francophone world in the 20th century. Sarah, great to have you with us. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit about the piece of popular media um, you'd like to, to share with our audience today. Yeah, so it's a documentary film that just came out a month or so ago called Les Roses. The English translation is The Rose Family. Um, and it's a documentary created by a guy named Felix Rose, who's the son of a activist in Quebec named Paul Rose, whose brother Jacques Rose was also an activist. Um, and it's sort of a combination of a family history of this guy rediscovering the uh, the movement in which his parent, his father, and his uncle were involved, as well as sort of exploring a moment of pretty dramatic activism in Quebec as part of the uh, history of separatism in the province. Um, so it sort of takes us from the Rose brothers' youth um, in the 1930s in Montreal and their sort of experiences with urban poverty and the discrimination against the Francophone population of Quebec um, traces their development across their youth in political movements, how they became involved, particularly with the movement for separatism in Quebec, which came to the fore in the 1950s and 60s, and brings us all the way through uh, the October crisis in 1970, where the Rose Brothers became famous for participating in the kidnapping of the Deputy Prime Minister of Quebec, Pierre Laporte, as part of the Front for the Liberation of Quebec. And then we hear a little bit more about um, their experiences in prison and how Paul Rose was eventually liberated, sort of, again, tracing that longer history all the way up until today to explore fully their life as part of the separatist movement. Great. Could you possibly just lay out a sort of narrative or a bit of a timeline of what the the events that are are being detailed here, and and what the sort of long term history that this piece of uh, culture is is placing itself into? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Quebec separatist movement is something that you know I'm particularly interested in. This is happening in the 1960s and 70s in particular, so I'm really fascinated by it. But it's not something that I think is talked about that much in sort of discussions of the global 1960s and global protests. Um, so definitely worth uh, getting some of our basic facts down here. Um, so the separatist movement in Quebec, which, as the name might imply, um, is revolving around the idea of Quebec as the only Francophone province of Canada and filled with a population of largely Francophone speakers who see themselves as having been discriminated against by the Anglophone population of the rest of Canada um, should be independent. And that's sort of the only way in this mindset that you know they're going to be able to become free from oppression and liberate themselves. Um, so this movement for separatism really comes to the fore in the 1950s and particularly the 1960s, where you get the rise of a much more militant separatist movement um, rather than just sort of a broad-based nationalist movement. Um, so throughout the 1960s, there is you know, increased discussion of what separatism could look like. There's a lot of discussion about Quebec as you know, the struggle for sovereignty in Quebec as like a decolonization movement, which is really interesting. 
Um, and in particular, the organization that the Rose Brothers are part of, which is the Front for the Liberation of Quebec or the FLQ, um, is established in 1963, undertakes various like bombings and bank robberies in 63, 64, as we can kind of imagine liberation fronts around the world as undertaking. Um, and in particular, the sort of most notable moment that they're involved in is, again, this kidnapping of actually two different ministers. There's two separate cells of the FLQ um, who kidnapped first the British diplomat uh, James Cross, and then second, the by the deputy prime minister of Quebec, Pierre Laporte. Laporte is eventually killed by the uh, FLQ cell. But having kidnapped um, the ministers in 1970, sparks what becomes known as the October Crisis, um, which is the deploying of the Canadian military against the population of Montreal, the suspension of habeas corpus and of civil liberties, and leads to the eventual arrest of about 700 uh, independence activists, certainly not all associated with the FLQ, but just various independence activists of all sort of shades and stripes um, in this moment as part of the repression of the independence movement. Okay, so what were the kidnappers hoping to achieve by kidnapping the deputy prime minister and the British diplomat? So there's a lot of debate over this in terms of the historiography of the FLQ. Um, they're an underground movement from most of the 1960s, so it's really only in more recent history that we've been able to, through oral histories and through um, discoveries of various documents as they've been released to the public, better understand exactly what the motivation was. Um, but at its heart, I mean, the FLQ is... A radical separatist movement, but it's also a socialist movement. It's very much inspired by the Marxism of the 1960s. Um, so as I said, they had undertaken various other sort of radical militant movement or actions in the past, but the kidnapping was sort of seen as this ultimate opportunity to um, raise consciousness amongst people in the province to sort of gain that international attention for the movement and gain international support, sort of gain some legitimacy as a radical separatist movement, um, so sort of imitating other actions that have been taken by global anti-colonial movements in the same moment. Um, and they, you know, as part of the kidnapping, they issue a set of demands, and you can see the sort of dual separatist and socialist ideology within their manifesto that they eventually get read on state television. Um, so there's things like the immediate release of all previous FLQ members who are arrested, so release of what they see as political prisoners, um, but there's also a demand that in, that advocates for the release of, um, or not the release, pardon, the uh, reinstation of fired factory workers from a large-scale strike in the province a couple of years earlier. So you can see there's this sort of like dual impulse of wanting separatism, wanting the sort of uh, raised attention and raise awareness around the idea of independence and gains people's support for it, but also... Um, trying to gain some amount of power and some amount of like negotiating ability through a dramatic action that could help them bring advantages or bring victories to the province. Is it fair to say, um, based on, on the text of the FLQ manifesto, which I think we can link with this show, um, is it fair to say that part of the concern here is directed at specifically American capitalism and at this idea um, that Quebec's southern neighbor is wielding undue influence over um, the lives of, of workers there. Yeah, I think that's a really important point for the FLQ and also just for radical militants in the era as well. Um, so the sort of dual oppression that is 
narrated as being um, imposed upon Quebec francophone, the Quebec francophone population in the era is this uh, first British imperialism um, dominated by Anglophones in Canada and from Britain. And that sort of stems back to the or 1760s conquest of Quebec by the British Empire, um, but also by American capitalism. So there's sort of an awareness of the fact that like most of the enterprise, most of the industry in the province, if not owned by Americans, is in some way directed by um, Anglophone and American Anglophone capitalist interests. Um, and it's actually docu been documented that the FLQ was originally hoping to kidnap an American diplomat rather than a British diplomat, um, but that this plan had been found out because there was a police raid on one of the places where they had been, you know, one of the places they had been using to organize, and they found some documents that seemed to indicate that that had been the plan, and the American diplomats were sort of whisked out of Montreal, and they had to change courses um, in terms of who they were actually going to kidnap. So some of this is also quite spontaneous, but you do see that you're absolutely right. There's really a targeting of both British uh, imperial interests in the province, but also American capitalist domination that they see as sort of the source of their oppression. How does this shake out then? How, what's the result of the October crisis? So as I say, the October crisis, you know, sparks the War Measures Act, creates a ton of frustration with the Canadian government at a federal level um, because of the way that they treat independence activists who had really nothing to do with the FLQ's kidnapping. Um, and I think this film in particular is a really interesting contribution to how we understand the long-term ramifications of the FLQ's kidnapping and of the October crisis. Um, so the kind of traditional narrative, what happens after the October crisis is that the much more militant, willing to use violence wing of separatism loses legitimacy. And this is true. Um, there's a lot of sort of pushback against this kind of what is perceived as terrorism and extreme violence. A lot of people in the province don't really like this, even amongst independence activists. Um, so the kind of traditional narrative is that that leads to increased labor organizing. You know, the more radical people move into more like workers party organizing rather than political organizing. And the people who pick up the slack of where the FLQ lights off in terms of separatism is the Parti Québécois, so the, the Quebec party. Um, so they are a more official sort of mainstream, still very left-leaning political party. Um, they gained power in 1976 at a provincial level. They're the ones who institute the 1980 and 1995 referendums for independence, neither of which succeed, but they really have the sort of popular legitimacy in the province for a very long time and often kind of monopolize the narrative of we're the ones who are bringing separatism into the 20th century and we're the ones really leading this effort for separatism. Um, so what I think this film is trying to do in some ways is push back on the monopoly that the PQ or the Parti Québécois has on the independence narrative and instead suggests that there might be another way of analyzing the sort of long-term ramifications of the FLQ and that there might be a way to sort of rehabilitate that memory into our understanding of where the province is today. And I think that's really interesting because obviously it's the 50th anniversary of of the October crisis in 1970. We were talking before the show today about how in recent years the Parti Québécois has essentially lost its hold on on politics in the province, and there is a reemergence of a younger and potentially more radical, more leftist, alternative vision of separatism. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, I think this film comes out, obviously, the biggest motivation is the October crisis. And it's partially also sparked by the fact that uh, Paul Ho's Felix, who's the director, Felix's dad died relatively recently. So I think he kind of undertook this project as a personal, you know, catharsis in some ways. So that's part of why it comes out now. But I think another big motivation for it for him is that, as you say, the Parti Québécois has, I think they have nine deputies left in the provincial government at this point. Um, the Conservative Party is now the head of the provincial government. Um, and the PQ has really come to be seen, particularly after the failure of the second referendum in 1995, it's come to be seen as much more establishment, much more sort of mainstream. A lot of the folks who are in it are significantly older um, and sort of stem from this moment of the 1960s, 1970s, early separatism. And a lot of young people don't feel like they've really adapted with the times, if you will. Um, so I think, you know, what is motivating this in some ways is a desire to reappeal to that younger generation, particularly to the people who are more adherents of Quebec Solidaire, which is a left socialist separatist group in Quebec, who now have, I believe, 10 seats in provincial parliament, um, even you know one more than the PQ. So they're sort of starting appealing to a younger generation of activists. And I think one thing that the film can do is sort of provide an alternative history of how we get to today in terms of the separatist movement that doesn't have to go through the PQ exclusively and can instead think about other ways that we get to a more left-leaning or socialist-leaning separatism rather than a more liberal mainstream social or mainstream separatism. Interesting. So the 50 years that have passed, um, in that time, did the PQ try and dominate the narrative about uh, separatism in Quebec? And, and, and why would the FLQ story be, be hidden and need to be re-examined in popular culture today? So I think that, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, obviously, but I think the PQ very much has dominated the story partially as a, a reasonable political move to gain legitimacy as sort of the speaker for Quebec on the federal scene. Um, so as I say, there's there's a referendum for independence in 1980, which loses like 59 to 30 or whatever, 59 to uh, 41, uh, however math works. Um, and then there's a referendum in 1995 that passes, uh, that goes to the no, but with a much smaller margin. So it's about 50 and a half to 49 and a half. Um, so they, you know, the PQ has worked really, really hard to make themselves the speaker for Quebec nationalism on the federal scene, the sort of legitimate representative of this movement. Um, you know, they have done a lot of really incredible things for Quebec. They've passed a lot of laws on um, like linguistic representation. They've done a lot for repatriating um, economic goods within the province and sort of limiting the ability of Anglophone populations to dominate in the province. So they've done a lot of things that nationalists in particular are quite proud of. Um, but I think the longer that it has gone from the 95 referendum and the less that the PQ has to sort of show for it, the more that people are beginning to question, and I think the creation of Quebec Solidaire, this more like left socialist group in, I think it was founded in 2006, um, the more that this has given room for a new narrative or a new mantle for independence to come up. Um, and again, I think the film shows this, this really well. So where traditional histories of what the legacy of the October crisis is really do focus on a sort of traditional path from 1970 to 76 when the PQ takes power to 80 with the referendum to 95 with the second referendum. That's sort of the normal through line. I think, you know, if you, look, if you watch this film, 
there's almost no mention of the PQ in the second half of the film, which is really focused on Paul Rose's experience in prison and the movement for uh, political prisoners in Quebec throughout the 1970s and 1980s. So you almost, you know, you hear one time where the PQ is mentioned because the head of the PQ actually turns down Jacques Rose, uh, the, the brother of Paul Rose. He asks for uh, a movement to pardon Paul and the other FLQ members who are still currently in prison, and the head of the PQ turns that down. Um, and otherwise, you hear really very little about them. So I don't think they're trying to like trash this memory by any means. But I think they are trying to sort of move away from a world in which we have to root all stories of independence through the PQ, and instead think about what an alternative trajectory could look like that takes us from the October crisis to the movement for political prisoners to um, 2006 with Quebec Solidaire and the Workers' Parties of the 1990s, to the student protests of 2012, and up until today where the PQ really has a lot less power in government and the Quebec Solidaire movement is really coming to the fore as the sort of preeminent socialist separatist movement of the present day. So to an extent, and I, I think this gets at a really interesting issue, to an extent, this film is about Felix Rose rehabilitating the memory of his father, the memory of his uncle, the memory of their associates. In And, and, and this takes us to, I think, a, a fundamental question and a fundamental term we haven't quite grappled with. How does Le Rose deal with questions of especially in the modern day, what terrorism is and and how terrorism gets handled. Yeah, you know, I think he, he deals with this really carefully. He knows that this is sort of a touchy subject for a lot of Quebecois people. And I think, you know, the, the fact that this is a family narrative gives him some ability to move around and provide a little more sympathy to people than you might if it was just a, a straightforward, you know, PBS documentary type thing. Um, I think it allows him to show some amount of respect and show some amount of dignity of the people that if you were just talking about like, this is a state terrorist movement, um, it might be harder to do in a legitimate way. But I think you see a lot throughout the film um, that the FLQ members in particular and their interviews with Jacques in the present day and Paul in the past when he was in prison, they really emphasize that they take upon themselves the responsibility for the death of Pierre Laporte. Um, they continually emphasize that this was, you know, if they hadn't kidnapped him, he would still be alive, that this is entirely their responsibility. And they don't say that they regret it, but they do very much take sort of a humane approach to, we know that we did this and we know that this is our responsibility and his death lies on our shoulders and we don't take that lightly. Um, that being said, I think that film tries really hard to explore how they get to this point and the kind of human misery that existed amongst the working class populations of Montreal, you know, from the 19th century through the 20th century. Um, and, you know, the ways in which life was really, really difficult. There were really very few expectations of people being able to get ahead or to get educated if they were Francophone in the province of Quebec throughout this era. Um, you know, people dying of, of poverty, people dying of cold and starvation. So I think he's trying really hard to sort of show the if not the legitimacy of this actual act, the legitimacy of a sort of humanistic revolutionary love, if you will, that leads them to a place where this act makes sense. Um, and I think is trying to explain that to the population of Quebec in a way that can be understood rather than, 
entirely condemned. So he's not necessarily trying to say that this is a great act and everybody should go kidnap people, obviously, um, but is trying to suggest that we can understand this within a particular trajectory rather than having to see it as this like extremist outside narrative. Um, and I think we see this movement to some extent through how other FLQ members have been treated um, in the more recent past in Quebec as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of the FLQ members, both of the cell in which uh, Paul and Jacques were, the, which there were two other people, and the other cell who kidnapped James Cross, who had four members as well. Um, so a lot of those people have gone on in contemporary Quebec to have full careers. Um, so the other cell that kidnapped James Cross ended up fleeing to Cuba after the kidnapping and stayed there for quite a long time. Um, but one of them, you know, has gone on to be the editor of Le Devoir, the main newspaper in Montreal. Several of them have gone on to be university professors. You know, many of them have had quite, quote unquote, normal lives as liberal progressive separatists in the province and have sort of managed to like fly under the radar as people who did this once but aren't that anymore, which is really fascinating, I think. Well, and I think especially with sort of the the American conception um, since 2001 mm -hmm. of the foreign terrorist, the terrorist um, who is, I suppose you could say this idea that terrorism and, and terrorist is an identity, mm -hmm. not a tactic. You are a terrorist. Um, and, and if we catch you, we can, we can detain you indefinitely for being so regardless right. of, of all other things. And I wonder if part of part of the the um the sort of cultural impetus that makes the roses rehabilitatable mm -hmm. is that they are Quebecois for a Quebecois audience. Um, you know, they are they are internal actors, they are internal terrorists rather than um foreign terrorists to, to use that problematic term. Yeah. I think that makes a huge difference for their ability to sort of come back to the province. And I think the fact that people, you know, weren't sympathetic to the act of violence, but were sympathetic to the separatist movement really makes a difference as well. Um, but as you say, I think in some cases or in some ways, this is more comparable to say the, the Irish Republican or Irish independence movements or the Puerto Rican independence movements, then it is comparable as an act of terrorism to what we often sort of uh, mis misunderstand as the exclusive way to see terrorism in the contemporary world, which is this like foreign anti-state aggressor. Um, this is much more part of internal domestic terrorism in favor of a political goal. Um, and I think that's also part of why this film is really, really emphasizing the idea that they are political prisoners and that the uh, federal government of Canada is burdening them as political voices, but is in many ways unwilling to see them as being political gestures and instead is treating them exclusively as, as you say, sort of terrorists. Um, so really the whole second half of the film is about the movement for political prisoners in Quebec, the way in which the Rose's mother actually ends up founding this organization for the release of political prisoners, how they deal with the court and the way the court treats them. So I think it is really trying to emphasize the ways in which this is rooted in an experience of Quebec and was done, even if people don't agree with it today, for the people of Quebec. 
um, rather than being this like outside terrorist movement, um, which I think to your point really can transform our understanding of like what the nature of terrorism can be and what its purpose is within a certain political viewpoint or within a certain political ideology, obviously not just using it, but sort of understanding where it comes from as part of a broader vision of what is necessary for a political goal. So if we could, let's talk a little bit about the audience for this movie, mm -hmm. because the message you're talking about is is very rooted in the Quebecois experience mm -hmm. of American capitalism, British imperialism, Anglophone imperialism. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that this film is available, as, as far as we can tell, exclusively in French. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's telling. Um... I would assume that at some point there will be an English subtitled version. Um, but, you know, having attempted to find an English version for y'all to watch along with me, I think it's not, it shouldn't have been surprising to me that it was available pretty exclusively in French. Um, so if you speak French and want to go watch the movie, feel free to go listen to it. It's available online. Um, but if you don't, you might have to wait a little bit and be able to watch it later on down the road when there's an English subtitled version. But, you know, the, the primary conflict in Quebec, particularly in the 20th century, um, is really around this issue of linguistic difference. And obviously there's cultural difference that comes along with that. There's an understanding in the 1960s of sort of racialized difference between uh, Francophone speakers and Anglophone speakers in the province. But there is really this, this root in linguistic difference and this pride in French as the primary language of Quebec um, that means that if this is an intended for an audience, as you say, primarily within the province, and if the message is much more for how do we as a group understand this for ourselves and how do we rehabilitate this memory, it's not terribly surprising that it's available exclusively in French, given that that's sort of the, the intention of the film. So you mentioned a couple of times that this movie is a personal tale for those involved and that the it's centered around individuals um, especially the Rose family. Why, why does the, the director choose to make it so personal? And what are some of the depictions of, of, uh, of the different characters involved? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, it's a really important and really interesting choice. As I said, I think one of the reasons is the ability to portray these people as somewhat more sympathetic than other people have been able to in the past. Um, you get some amount of sort of emotional response from the fact that, you know, whenever he interviews new people he refers to them as like my aunt or my grandmother or you know any of these sorts of like very personal relation subtitles so you get some amount of this like intimacy from it that i think is really important for making these people quite sympathetic um and i think the other the sort of interesting transition to what this does for the audience is you know quebec is a very it's a rather tight-knit community um as somebody who studies quebec it can often be kind of complicated uh, to explain things about Quebec to other people while also understanding that people in Quebec have this very particular understanding of themselves and a kind of closed off historiography in some ways. You know, a lot of the history of Quebec is written for people in Quebec in French, published by people within Quebec. Like there's not a ton of audience for it outside of the province. And obviously that's often the case for small places in general. But I think that's also part of the nature of the sort of mentality of how Quebec works, which is often very interested in their own affairs, very interested in defending what they see as their own people. Um, you know, most of the residents of Quebec, the Francophone residents in particular, there are waves of immigration in the 20th century, but most of the Francophone residents come from very early settlement from France, which obviously, you know, 
broadly ends with the British conquest of, of Quebec in the 1760s. So a lot of the people who live in Quebec have been there or can trace their roots back to the 1650s, 1660s, 1700s, with these very early waves of Francophone migration from France. So there's this kind of sense of like intimacy and familial spirit amongst people in Quebec that I think he's really trying to draw on by making this a family story um, and by making this something that can appeal to a sort of us, right? That's this feeling of like, well, we're all sitting in the living room and we're going to kind of have this conversation together in a way that we can be a little more honest. We can be a little more forthcoming with the ideas that we need to talk about. And we don't really have to pay attention to everything else going on in the rest of the world because they're hanging out over there and we're going to deal with our stuff first. Um, so, I mean, you see, as I say, you see a lot more sort of sympathetic description of these people who are often described as you know, big machismo, aggressive revolutionary men. And you see a lot more of their more intimate, difficult sides. You know, Jacques Rose, the, the uncle of the director, is near tears a few times when he talks about the experience of his brother in prison, because Paul goes to prison for more like 15 years or so, and he only is in prison for a few years. Um, so you see a really emotional side of it through this narrative that I'm not sure you could get at otherwise. And I think the other thing that it does for them is it really lets Felix emphasize the role of women and of family women in particular in the independence movement in Quebec. Um, so Jacques and Paul's mother, whose name is Rose Rose, funnily enough, um, one of the problems of marrying into family. Um, so she is really the founder of the Committee for Political Prisoners of Quebec, which gets a huge boost in you know, the post-October crisis era. Um, so she founds it really to help support her son, but also helps... Um, you know, address the pardon cases or the uh, court cases of other FLQ members of other militants who were detained without rights during the War Measures Act's implementation in Montreal in the, uh, in the 70 crisis. Um, so you see really the work that she does in ways that is often ignored by the more traditional machismo revolutionary narrative. And you see how the Rose's sisters, I think they had, he had three sisters, um, so you see how they really play a role, how they engage in protests, what kinds of activism they're able to do, what kinds of activism they're kind of protected from doing because they're women and that, you know, the cops aren't going to beat on them the way that they do many of the men involved in these movements. So I think he is really shining the spotlight on women and on mothers in the independence movement in a way that has often been ignored before. You know, there's this great quote from Rose, the mother, uh, when She's giving an interview in the uh, maybe 74, 75, somewhere in there. And she's talking about, you know, her attitude towards political prisoners in the province. And she says, you know, in a very, historians would love, you know, historians of gender and of maternalism would love analyzing this quote, but she says, all the men in prison, all the FLQ men in prison are my children. I see them all as my sons. I see them all as my children. Um, so she's really emphasizing the sort of maternal love instinct protection over these people. And I think doing it from that family perspective allows Felix Rose to look back on the role of women and really play up how important they were and how central they were to facilitating the work of more politically visible men in the era, um, rather than just shining the spotlight on these sort of traditional big political figures that we have seen in the past. What would you say that historians of all periods can learn from this film about the advantages or maybe the pitfalls of telling the histories of people that 
we identify with, whether as as family, whether as uh, co-religionists, whether as countrymen, people we identify with who have done things that are are somewhere on the spectrum from really questionable to to really deeply horrible. I think there's a lot of really fascinating things historians can take from this film. I mean, on the one hand, it's a real treasure trove for historians of Quebec because he does draw on a lot of family material and family sources that, frankly, I don't think scholars have ever seen before. You know, there's like uh, recordings that Paul Rose made illegally while in prison that he sent back to his mother to communicate with her. There's all these interviews. So it's a really, it's an incredibly rich trove of resources for historians who look at this moment in Quebec's history. Um, But as you say, I think there's sort of a broader lesson for historians writ large. And obviously this isn't really Felix's goal because it is you know, as a family member, people he identifies with and are trying to grapple with in kind of a different way than a historian might. Um, But I think there's kind of a dual lesson we can take. So on the one hand, I think, as you say, there's, there's some amount of thinking about what people who we might have, you know, we might want to be quite sympathetic to, or we might identify with in some ways, looking at what they've done that, it may be and according to our own moralities isn't quite as acceptable. Um, so there's a way of sort of putting that within its historical context, which is obviously what we do to some extent, but without zooming in on the exclusive one big picture event um, and sort of tracing that longer history of the before and after. And I think that's something that film does really, really well. You know, the October crisis is about the middle point of the film and really is talked about for maybe 20 minutes in depth. Um, so he's trying to sort of zoom out from this moment and look rather at how we get to an action that we see as being, you know, despicable according to our contemporary norms and where we go from there. And I think that's one way to really understand, not necessarily to, you know, promote this as a positive thing, but to look at it and understand as historians where this is coming from and how someone can rationally get to a point where this makes sense to them. I think that can be a really valuable lesson for us to sort of grapple with where people come from and where they go with it on an individual level that can put that more distinctive event in a longer trajectory um, that can be more valuable for us as sort of a narrative. And I mean, I think the other side of it that is one of the things I'm always interested in as a historian, and particularly, you know, I am from uh, from Quebec originally, so I, I have some amount of sympathy towards the Quebec separatist movement, if not towards the FLQ's actions in particular. Um, I think there's value to some extent that maybe we don't see as often as historians in trying to identify with historical figures. And obviously you don't want to go too far into that. You don't want to like, you know, valorize them in ways that are problematic or that ignore the actual history of it. But I think understanding the ways in which historical figures are emotionally linked to others in which they are behaving as part of a social network and are behaving as somebody, you know, conditioned by the peoples around them and particularly for contemporary historians, how, um, you know, how more dramatic events that sit quite close to the heart of people today can be understood and can be unpacked and what power those sorts of events have. So while we don't want to sort of over-identify with historical actors as historians, thinking about the compassion that people felt in the past, the ways in which actions or events of the past are held really near and dear to a lot of people in contemporary society, I think can be helpful as a historical sort of methodology, right, of understanding 
where that comes from in an emotional way. And while not necessarily sympathizing with it ourselves, understanding where the sympathy comes from to be able to better explain its legacies and its origins as well. I think that can be a really, really valuable lesson for historians that I think this film makes um, a point of quite clearly by giving us, again, that sort of familial narrative and that more alternative history of how we get to a world today in Quebec where separatism is still imaginable and uh, but is maybe led by a different group with a different political ideology than has been the case for the last you know, 20, 30 years of Quebec's history. Thanks, Sarah. That's a particularly interesting point to end on, I think, with a, a lesson perhaps on from popular culture for, for historians um, and something that we can all perhaps think of more as, as, as historians ourselves. Um, I want to thank you again, Sarah, for coming on. Thanks so much. I appreciate you all having me. Uh, you've been listening to The Lens, Historians and Popular Culture. Um, we'll be back with more episodes this season. Uh, we have one with, with our very own Gabe going to be discussing Civilization, the, the um, 4X uh, video game. And we have more in store afterwards as well. So thanks, everyone, for being here. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. <laughs>